Welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast, and I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I have interest in pretty much everything healthcare, policy, research, innovation, treatment, education, mentorship, leadership. I appreciate your support. Thank you so much for being on Healthcare Unfiltered as we have surpassed 100,000 uh, you know, since this podcast has started. I appreciate your support. Don't forget to let me know what you think. Always send me your feedback. And of course, you can get the best t-shirt in business, the Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. Today's podcast is with a medical oncologist that I have admired from afar. Dr. Christopher Booth from Canada is an amazing medical oncologist. He cares deeply about patients. He is a GI oncologist in clinical care, but he also is very interested in healthcare policy, care delivery, and research. He is a professor in the departments of oncology and medicine at Queen's University, and he is the Canada Research Chair in Population Cancer Care. He is the director of the CCE division at Queen's Cancer Research Institute. He is a clinician and a scientist. And I got to know Dr. Booth, uh, Christopher, from reading a lot of his work at major journals. I'm talking Lancet. I am talking Journal of Clinical Oncology, journals that are very impactful. But frankly, it wasn't really the journal that made his articles impactful. It was the content of the articles that he wrote that made the impact on me very impactful. He writes impeccably well, and he really is able to reach the readers, reach the listeners uh, when he speaks and when he lectures. He has a broad uh, areas of interest, obviously, when it comes to policy research, but I've asked him to help me dissect hype from hope. We all want our patients to remain hopeful. We, as medical oncologists, we want to be hopeful. We want to be hopeful to take care of patients because if we lose hope, our patients are going to lose hope. So we want to be hopeful. We want to be able to provide the proper care to our patients with empathy and hope. But at the same time, we should not be hyping things that do not work or hyping interventions that we think are providing marginal benefit. Chris is going to help me and you separate hype from hope in today's podcast. But I will challenge him and I will challenge him and I will push back because sometimes medical oncologists believe that they know what is better for patients, but they need to ask these patients. What might be valuable to patient A could be not valuable to patient B and vice versa. The assumption, for example, that response rate matters not and only overall survival matters, in my humble opinion, is a bit nihilistic because we don't know if all patients feel that. And frankly, we don't know if we are going to feel the same when we are patients because we will be patients. All of you who are listening on today's podcast will be patients, including your host. So today is going to be a very interesting podcast. So I appreciate you tuning in. I promise you it's going to be one of the best podcasts you have listened to. Dr. Christopher Booth on Healthcare Unfiltered.
Chris, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. We are very excited that we have you on. And uh, you are not active on Twitter or social media, which is a big problem. We're going to talk about that. But this is a nice segue that you got to introduce yourself because, you know, if you were active on Twitter, people would have known a lot about you by now, but you're not. So who the heck are you? Great. Uh, thank you, Chadi. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. I've been a fan of your work and have read it for years, and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast, usually during my long runs along the shores of Lake Ontario. Um, so I'm a medical oncologist. I'm based in Kingston, Canada, Queen's University. I split my time between the Cancer Centre, where I look after patients with GI cancer, and in the other half of my time, I'm the director of a research unit that looks at health services research, delivery of care, quality of care, global oncology and health policy. And so I, I wear a few different hats, but I'm, I'm very interested in the intersection about how health systems and health policy uh, interface with evidence and randomized trials and ultimately with patient care. And so those are um, the themes that I care most deeply about and that's how I, um, how I spend my time at work. Chris, what got you into that? Like, first of all, what got you into the GI oncology piece? But I, you know, at least um, most of us, when we go to medical school, healthcare policy is such an enigma to us. What got you interested in it? Good question, Chatty. Um, so I, uh, I, I did, you know, I did medical school here at Queens, um, and uh, did my internal medicine training and medical oncology training at the University of Toronto. So my oncology training was largely at Princess Margaret Hospital and Sunnybrook. Um, I had a very last-minute detour into oncology, which was really based on some very intense uh, and rich. Uh, patient relationships, and I realized that that was where I wanted to devote my career to. Um, and so I went through training uh, during at the University of Toronto training program. Uh, you rotate, you know, a few months of breast and lung in different hospitals. But there's a concept called a longitudinal clinic, which is a half-day clinic that you do um, every every week for two years. Um, because again, in Canada, you choose either hematology or medical oncology, and it's a two-year program. So. I wasn't smart enough like you guys to train them both. So I just trained in uh, solid tumor medicine. Um, and so I uh, fell into clinic with my mentor, uh, my, my supervisor at the time, who became a mentor and then a dear friend, Dr. Scott Berry, who was a GI medical oncologist at Sunnybrook. So Scott taught me a lot of what I know about GI cancer. And then, you know, fast forward 15 years, and now he's here at Queens as our department chair. Um, so that's how I got an interest in GI oncology. I guess I'm also the son of a gastroenterologist. So I wasn't, I wasn't uh, dexterous enough to become an endoscopist, but I thought I could treat GI cancer, make my parents proud. But um, in any case, so that's kind of how I got into the clinical space. Um, I think the big picture questions what is what always really interested me. I I never was all that interested in basic science and pathways and biomarkers and you know the basic science of oncology. I was really interested in care at the bedside and how the system uh, could either work or not work to deliver effective care to all patients who need it. And you know. I was very lucky in training to have some incredibly formative mentors. Uh, the first one in oncology was Ian Tannock, um, who, uh, as many of your listeners will know, is really a luminary in our field and who really in, 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 you know, instilled in me a sense of curiosity, um, maybe some skepticism, willing to push back and challenge the status quo. And so as I was finishing my clinical training at Princess Margaret Hospital in Canada, it's quite common to go on if you want an academic position to do advanced training and research methods. So I left Princess Margaret 
and I came actually back to Queen's, which is uh, where the Canadian Cancer Trials Group is based, Canada's only cooperative trials group. And so I came here for two years, actually as a research fellow in clinical trials, uh, working with other luminaries in our field, like Joe Pater and Elizabeth Eisenhower. And so Elizabeth was really the next um, major figure in my oncology training as a mentor, and again is, uh, you know, extremely creative, willing to challenge uh, dogma and push new ideas. And at that point, I was figuring out where I wanted to live and have a career. And so uh, for both work and family reasons, we decided to settle in Kingston. Um, and at this point, I pivoted from clinical trials into health services research with another mentor, Bill McKillop, who is really one of the godfathers of health services research and oncology. So I think it was a constellation of experiences and really these formative mentors that helped me figure out, you know, where could I maybe contribute? Where, um, where does our cancer system fail patients? And I just found these really, really big picture issues to be uh, very, very interesting. You know, in my mind, I always think that um, this, is, this type of research is really harder than clinical trials. I feel that clinical trials, I'm not, I'm not downplaying how um, complex they could be, but you kind of, you kind of, you know, you have this. It's uh, phase one, phase two, phase three. You design endpoint. You got the sticks and you follow. It's a little bit the the, the framework or the blueprint of how to conduct them is there. It's of course, it's a matter of the, getting the drug and the funding, all of that stuff, which is complex. But in health research, in healthcare research, delivery research. There's so much that is vague because, you know, a lot of this out of your control as an investigator, right? It's you've got government, you've got policymakers. So as you do this research, how do you like, how do you give me your measures of success? How does Christopher Booth, when you're doing something, how do you look back and say, I was successful in this project or the other project? Chad, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I haven't heard that articulated very often. But when I was making the decision, as I was transitioning from my research fellowship into faculty, and I decided, look, I've trained in clinical trials, but I really want to do health services research. It was Bill McKillop who sat me down and said, Chris, are you really sure you want to do this? This is actually really hard. And again, I have huge respect for the trialists. I don't want to take away from anything they do. It's a lot of important and hard work. But as you say, it's a little bit more of a defined pathway. And Bill said, you're going to have to get your own grants. You're going to have to argue with people to justify the work you do is important. It is not an easy path. And so I, uh, you know, I was lucky in, in Ontario, we have the Ontario Cancer Registry, which collects um, basic information about every patient with cancer in the province of Ontario. So this is a health system of 14 million people, a single payer public health system, which means that we have data on everyone. And Bill and others had linked the cancer registry to the uh, treatment records for the entire province of Ontario. So I could tell you, you know, with uh, a fair degree of precision, what the pathway was of care, what the treatments delivered and what the outcomes were of every patient with cancer in Ontario. So in the early years, I, I was really an apprentice for a few years learning how to do this, um, linking these data sets, learning the epidemiologic pitfalls, what analytic methods to use. And again, 
the way to really do this work is surrounded by a true multidisciplinary team of epidemiologists, clinicians, biostatisticians, people who know how to work with the data. So in the early years, the measure of success for me was really learning how to use these data sets, asking a question, and then be able to finish a project and publish it. And so that was in the early days. And then, of course, I had to get grants along the way and, and justify my, my academic uh, protected time. Um, so I did that for very intensely for the first 10 years or so of my career. And then there was a bit of a pivot, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, I think for me, as far as the metrics of, of success, and this is something that actually, uh, you know, has been in the forefront of my mind for the last year or two is I, I no longer want to um, just publish papers, get grants, the usual thing. Um, you know, I, I, that's a necessary step. But what I really want to do, and I'm still learning how to do that, is how to influence systems, mindsets, and policies to ultimately improve the care that we deliver for patients. And that, as you say, that's very nebulous and it's very, very difficult. And in the early days, you publish science and you hope that policymakers notice. And you also publish science because I think it gives you insights and ultimately credibility and perhaps a platform or a voice where people uh, might listen to, you know, a random oncologist from the countryside of Canada. Um, and so I think those are necessary steps, but I'm now at the point where for me, the measure of success will be if I can contribute in some small way to how clinical care is delivered at the bedside and how the health system uh, is, is uh, organized and uh, implemented. And so, you know, for me, it's not so much about publishing papers that maybe my mother and, you know, three or four other people read. It's, uh, it's about actually doing work that I know will directly influence policy. And it is a certainly a sign of maturity because let's face it, in the beginning, you got to publish these papers so people know who you are and you establish the credibility and then you could become picky and, and choosy. Uh, and you're obviously at that stage but uh, can you, you mentioned something, Chris, about the 14 million registry and so on. I think folks who are listening may not be familiar with, with, with that, with how big that system is. Can you maybe shed some light into it? So these are 14 million patients with cancer? No, no, no. This is the, the population of Ontario. So Ontario is the largest province in, in Canada. Uh, it has uh, a population of 14 million. And there is a, a, a provincially government mandated Ontario Cancer Registry where basically by law in an anonymous, you know, secure way, basic demographic and disease data are captured in this registry. So it's a population based cancer registry. It's been ongoing for decades that collects every cancer diagnosis amongst this population of 14 million people. So, I mean, going back decades, there are tens and tens and thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of cases. It's almost like SEER Medicare, but for everyone, old, young, rich, poor, rural, urban, community centers, academic centers. Available to whoever wants to. Mind. It's available. Yeah, there, there's, you know, privacy regulations you have to go through, but it, it is available for any investigator or academic unit in Ontario. And we're very lucky that since the early days, the registry, we, we've held that cancer registry here at Queen's. And, and, and then the, the beautiful part is on top of that, our unit has patched on the chemotherapy records for every patient, the radiotherapy records for every patient, surgery, and then survival data. So this is really, I think, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the advantages of a single-payer health system is that we have data on everyone, not just old or urban or hospital-based or insurance company-based. It's everyone. So it's quite a powerful tool to understand delivery of care in the real world. 
That's amazing. That's really amazing. Very powerful. It's a very powerful tool. And I guess, you know, the other thing, just to follow up, Chatty, on your earlier question is, you're right. It's, I think it's kind of an evolution of, of career thinking. And, and so for me, it happened like about a year ago where I was, you know, we just finished some large projects. We published some fairly big papers and I was about to launch into that grant writing phase and design the next research study. And for the first time in my career, I had a bit of a, a, a weird feeling in my stomach. It was almost a bit of a sick feeling. And I said, what is that? And I, I didn't want to get back on that treadmill. I didn't want to be so busy designing research studies, having a flow of data and publishing like literally 40 papers a year that I couldn't actually act on it. And so I, I went through a period of introspection and spoke to you know mentors, you know, dozens of them, uh, different people that I looked up to all over the world and asked for advice about how I might be able to use my skills and experience to have the greatest impact. And what I realized was I needed to reduce the size of my research program to create time, space, and creative energy to think about how to actually influence mindsets, systems, and policies. So, you know, it might've been the first time in the history of an academic, you know, department review where my annual goal this year was to publish 50% uh, less papers. Um, because, you know, the last number of years, our program has been so rich and productive and I've had such amazing colleagues, but, you know, we're publishing 40 papers a year, which has been great for, you know, answering questions and learning and having fun, but it didn't really allow time for deep reflection and trying to follow up and ensure that some of those really really important findings actually translate into policy and practice. So I've tried to be more selective and, and decrease my research program to allow the time and energy to have maybe more outreach with policy makers, makers with the public, with our clinical community um, and, and with patients. And really, I mean, the impact, the impact that you will have is not is never going to be measured by the number of papers. It's going to be measured by how impactful that paper was. I mean, you could have one paper a year, frankly, and it could be so influential that changes a lot of things. And you could have 40 papers and they don't really change much. So I think certainly we're thinking alike where really the impact or the influence or the legacy of what you're trying to accomplish is going to be measured by the impact of whatever few papers you have versus the sheer number of papers. Academically, culturally, the number of papers is always important, but you're now at the, you're a professor, so it doesn't matter at this point. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. I guess the way I look at it is, you know, I'm so privileged. Uh, you know, I, I've lived a life of, uh, you know, what I refer to as unearned privilege, right? I, um, I through the lottery of life, I was born into, uh, you know, an upper middle class family in Canada where I had access to schools and education, and I went to good universities. And, and now I have a job where, you know, I'm so lucky, I, I look after patients, which I think is the most, you know, one of the most noble callings there is, and, and a, a job that I love. And then, you know, two or three days a week, I get paid to sit and look out a window and think about problems and, and work on really anything I want to do. And so I've got it, you know, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm certainly well into mid-career. Uh, I'm no longer early career. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I've been given this opportunity. I kind of want to make the most of it. And so it's been it's been an interesting journey to, to get to this point. Well, I mean, certainly. And you have because, I mean, I've heard about you through your published work. So you're clearly reaching a lot of folks. But let, let, let's uh, pivot from there into maybe the current projects that you are working on, because I really want to get us into the impact on patients. And we both are medical oncologists. We took care of patients. And really, there's this fine line between maintaining hope 
to the patients that we serve because ultimately we want them hopeful, we wanna help them, but we wanna do that without the hype. We wanna make sure we're truthful and honest with them. But to get us there, to try to answer that question, maybe a good segue, uh, you could maybe tell us the top two or three projects you're currently working on and how you see these projects fitting into the ultimate stakeholder, which is the patient. I think you're right. I mean, this is the core issue that that really keeps us up at night and, and how can we balance those things and deliver care that really matters. I guess one of the things I've learned in this, you know, introspective journey over the last year is, you know, I think Elizabeth Eisenhower in one of these mentorship chats said, Chris, you've got like 30 seconds summarize. What's your mission statement? And I'm sure we'll talk about it later in the interview, but I, a few years ago, I started working a lot in, in global health and global oncology, and that's really opened my eyes to many problems that exist both in Canada, US, but also more broadly in, in emerging uh, cancer health systems. And so I guess my mission statement is, I wanna live in a world where um, regardless of where someone lives, they get access to the cancer treatments that really matter. They get access to the fundamental surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, palliative care, and primary care that we know makes a big, big difference. Um, and I also, it's almost like a yin and a yang, because the, the flip side of that is I, I don't want to work in a health system where we deliver treatments to patients, especially in the last year of life, that don't help them, but probably harm them with side effects, financial toxicity, and something that we've been thinking about lately a lot called time toxicity, that, you know, the concept that we, we sometimes take away meaningful time as an opportunity cost trade-off um, that's spent pursuing treatments that might not really help. So I've been trying to see um, you know, various projects and challenges in our field through that lens. Um, so that's really influenced the work I do both in Canada as well as in the global context. So um, some of the work that we're doing in the global context, I've been very privileged the last five years to sit on the uh, World Health Organization Essential Medicine List Cancer Medicine Working Group. And so I've been able to sit at tables where we review applications and have very frank discussions as an international group. This is oncologists and methodologists from all over the world about what really are the most essential cancer medicines and how do we prioritize that, uh, recognizing that not every health system, well, there's no health system on the planet that can afford every treatment, um, but how do we prioritize the ones that make the biggest difference? And so this has led to a number of interesting um, studies and the one that was published, I guess, almost a year ago in Lancet Oncology, we called the Desert Island Project. And uh, this was an interesting one. It emerged from uh, this WHO uh, committee that I sit on. And it, we call it the Desert Island Project because it was based on the dinner party experiment that I'm sure you and I have done many times, which is if you're moving to a desert island and you can only bring uh, three books, what would those books be? If you were uh, you know, going to a desert island and you could only listen to one podcast, but not Chatty Nathan's podcast, what would that be? Those kinds of things. There we go. There we go. So it, it was essentially, we did uh, a survey of a thousand frontline oncologists and we gave them a desert island thought experiment. And we said, imagine that your government has put you in charge of cancer medicines for your country. Um, you can choose any medicine you want for the people of your country, but you are only allowed to choose 10. Which 10 medicines would you choose to achieve the greatest public health benefit for the people of your country. And it was fascinating to see the responses across these thousand oncologists from very different health systems. 
And what we realized is that the medicines that oncologists prioritize almost, almost exclusively, the vast majority were older chemotherapy and hormone drugs that have been around for 20 or 30 years that we know have very, very large benefits. There were also some newer medicines that made the list coming to the desert island, but they were the medicines that have large benefits. Even if they're new and expensive, they really transform lives. That was the first part of the project. The second part of the project was we said to the respondent, okay, uh, you've told us what you want to put in your suitcase when you're moving to the desert island. Uh, now we want to go to the reality. Uh, take us to you know, the front lines of care in your health system. To what extent are these high priority medicines available for all patients? And that's where the, everything fell apart because we saw that despite the fact that the medicines that oncologists think are most important, despite the fact most of them are older, generic drugs and should be very, very affordable, for the vast majority of patients worldwide, these drugs remain out of reach. And that's a tragedy. And I think that that's something that um, our community needs to take ownership on and needs to recognize. And so a lot of the work I'm doing now is uh, related to this kind of what we call, you know, I conceptualize as the value crisis in oncology. And I think we have a real problem with value. And it's not just price tag, it's the numerator in the value construct, which is the magnitude of benefit in the endpoints. And so I think a lot of our work is, is related to that. I guess a second piece of work that I'm very interested in now is uh, the concept of time toxicity. And so I'm lucky enough to, to mentor a, a number of young emerging superstars. Uh, one of those is uh, Dr. Arjun Gupta at the University of Minnesota. We've been doing a lot of work on time toxicity, which is understanding how patients' time is spent pursuing treatment, especially near the end of life, and recognizing that, you know what, it's not up to me to provide a value judgment for any specific patient about how they spend their time. Uh, it's, and it's not up to me really to tell them if, you know, two weeks or four weeks or six weeks of PFS or eight weeks of survival is meaningful. Uh, I think um, what our job is to generate data so that oncologists can convey this information to patients. And I think we've largely failed that. And so that's where we're trying to generate data to empower patients to have all the information they need to make um, decisions that fit their own values and preferences. But you said, the, you said the golden word, which is it's really difficult to impose on patients what we think is right. I mean, we I'm sure you've had patients like I did where you know that probably this therapy has such a marginal benefit and you wouldn't do it. And you would say, I probably wouldn't do it, but they force your hand. And I think that, you know, if you keep saying no, they will go see somebody else that is going to do that. So there's, there's this, there's this balance where, you know, you mentioned value, you mentioned what's important. I got to tell you, maybe I'm a little bit more pragmatic. I think it is very easy for us as physicians to, when we're healthy and feel well, and we look at the numbers and the data to tell patients, you shouldn't take this. We're not the ones who are ill. We're not the ones who are facing death. We're not the ones who are going to leave our family and children behind. And, you know, patients will really cling to hope. They cling to the possibility, maybe this thing will work. Maybe, you know, I'm going to be the exception. Maybe this is going to make me spend two months extra with my grandchild, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with these eight weeks extra. We may not think that's enough. That's eight weeks, it's negligible, it's very costly, but to the patient, it is. How do you reconcile this? How do you reconcile the human aspect of things 
and and really versus Excel sheets and p-values and Kaplan markers? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I guess, Chadi, I would I would answer that question from two perspectives. There's the health system perspective, and there's the doctor-patient bedside discussion. And so, um, you know, at the health system context, clearly health systems need to make decisions about how, how to optimally allocate resources for the to maximize the public good of of the uh, the citizenship. And um, you know, these are especially uh, you know the U.S. is a is quite quite a bit different from Canada and Western Europe in this regard, but these decisions are made every day in every health system, whether people acknowledge it or not. And the reality is, is uh, at some point a health system has to say this offers low value for the system, and this is not something the public health system can pay for. I mean, imagine we had a drug that cost a million dollars, and with great precision and a beautiful clinical trial, it improved median survival by four days. And I mean, you know, I think we, that's an extreme example, but just somewhere along that continuum, I think most people will agree that a treatment might not be in the best interest of the health system. Um, but let's get to your question, which I think is at the bedside, which obviously is probably the most important thing that we do is these discussions with patients. I agree with you that some patients uh, will have very different values and preferences from, from others, and including myself. And there are a subset of patients that this has been shown actually in empiric literature. There are some patients that will do anything for 1% or a week or something like that. I actually believe, in my experience, those patients are a, a significant minority. Um, in my experience, and I, and I didn't do this early in my career, maybe because I didn't have enough confidence, but as I've gained experience, I'm much more um, comfortable having very frank discussions with patients about what the treatment can offer and what it can't. And so let's set aside curative intent or adjuvant therapy because I think that's a different discussion. But in solid tumor medicine, where the treatment is clearly palliative, I think that we can do a better job in conveying um, the magnitude of benefit. It's so much easier to say your CAT scan shows things are growing, um, you know, but don't worry, we have something else and we move on to it. And I, but I think if we take the time and we go through in very clear and careful language and explain, here's what it's going to involve, here's the amount of time, here's the number of visits, here's the side effects. In the clinical trial, on average, it helped people live for an extra two months or three months. Or unfortunately, we might also say in the clinical trial, we don't even know if there's a survival benefit. What we know is that it shrinks tumors on a CAT scan for an extra two or three months. And, and I found that when, when I speak very plainly like that, and honestly, the vast majority of patients for these marginal therapies that you and I have given for many years, the vast majority of patients will look and say, really, that's it. And then I feel like I've done my job just because I've conveyed the information, I've empowered them. And as you said, some patients will accept that treatment, some patients will say no, thank you. And there's no right or wrong answer. But I think as a community, we fail our patients if we don't carefully, clearly, and compassionately explain these limitations of our treatments. But these marginal benefits are usually stepping stones to larger benefits. Uh, you're a GI oncologist, and I, I, I'm sure your memory serves, serves you right, that the first trial that shows CPT-11 has any benefit over 5-FU leucoborin was probably eight weeks improvement was, I believe, published by Leonard Saltz in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we could say, you know, eight weeks is nothing, the value is negligible, but literally, I believe this was 
the first study that showed this incremental benefit. And right now, when you have a patient with metastatic colorectal cancer, you could possibly say you have a median survival of three to four years sometimes, depending on how things go. But am I being naive in saying that these smaller weeks after weeks eventually could lead to months after months? And if we really approach the week's improvement nihilistically, we could be providing this service to our patients? It's a great analogy. And I've thought about that because colorectal cancer is the perfect paradigm for that. It's been these stepwise incremental gains. Um, one of my teachers in Toronto in oncology said, you know, Chris, we're curing cancer four weeks at a time. And, uh, you know, these stepwise improvements, they do lead to meaningful gains. But, but I think that if you look at the history of oncology, the vast majority of these treatments that in a clinical trial showed an improvement in four to eight weeks, we don't even use them anymore, right? Regorafenib, you know, TAS-102, you know, all these things that we either we use or we use and roll our eyes. I don't think, I think we can agree those aren't going to lead to any, and you know what, those treatments, at least some of them showed a four-week overall survival benefit or eight-week overall survival benefit. So much of what we do now is just based on, on PFS. And I guess the other thing I'll touch on is, um, you know, wearing this hat of, being in the world of clinical trials, but also health services research, I've been very interested in what we call uh, the translation of efficacy to effectiveness. What are the outcomes and the benefits observed in clinical trials? And do we realize those gains in the real world? And it's been very clear in work done by our group and others that there is uh, evidence of a gap. There's a gap between efficacy and effectiveness. And it's not surprising because we know that the patients that go on clinical trials look very different from the patients we see in clinic every day. And so if we have these marginal improvements in clinical trials, they're almost certainly attenuated in the real world. And in in some cases, they might actually disappear or cause net harm if the toxicity is greater in patients that are older, sicker, and frailer. So I, I, I totally acknowledge um, the point that you're making, Chad, is that we can't discount the fact that sometimes incremental progress happens in small uh, steps. But I, I do think the pendulum has swung too far and we're designing trials with endpoints that may not matter to patients. And we're overpowering trials to detect these very small. We're not, you know, we could do patients a greater service if we had smaller clinical trials. And, you know, we aim high. But the reality is, is the current regulatory system, particularly in the United States, will uh, give approval and therefore, you know, carte blanche for the smallest incremental gain you can find. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the theory behind it, and I've been very interested in this, actually, I have a manuscript under review currently on accelerated approval. Um, You know, the, the, the counter argument to this is we would like to provide these drugs that might save lives faster to patients but we will leave it up to Chris Booth as a clinician to determine whether that drug is appropriate for the patient that he is seeing. We don't want to be barrier to that. We will make the drug available. We're not really slapping your hand telling you must prescribe it, but you may encounter that rare patient that you really feel as a clinician that this drug is appropriate for. And if it wasn't available, then you don't have that choice. Yeah, I, I concede that point. Um, you know, I'm not an expert in kind of FDA regulatory pathways and accelerated approval, but, but I, I have some concerns with this. I agree patients want access to treatments quickly, um, but they also want access to treatments that work. And so the, the, here, this is the holy grail is finding that sweet spot. And um, 
I, I do have some concerns that we are adopting treatments very, very quickly. And then these clinical trials, the confirmatory trials are just never done. And then we not only are, you know, potentially harming or giving marginal benefits to the patients right now, but this is going to become standard of care for like tens of years, which impacts thousands and thousands of patients. And there's opportunity costs for the next generation of clinical trials. So I, I, I can understand the desire to approve a promising therapy early based on early data, but I really think there needs to be a confirmatory trial underway at the same time or else we'll never have the answer. I mean, we need to take a step back and remember the null hypothesis is null. The reality is, is that most treatments that start, they actually don't help patients. And so I think we can, you know, retain maybe a little bit of scientific humility and recognize that things that look promising, a lot of them will not pan out. Some of them will, but I think we owe it to our patients to actually measure these things so that we know that when we're recommending this to future generations of patients, there's actually a real benefit there. So right now, when you talk to patients, when you're dealing with patients who are sick, it's metastatic disease, it's not curative uh, intent, and you're working on prescribing therapy in the real world outside of clinical trials, how do you, how do you communicate, I guess, the information in a way that is empathetic, at the same time realistic, at the same time you really want to, you know, you don't want your you know, it's very difficult diagnosis. It's very challenging. And you want to, how do you balance? Uh, how do you keep patients hopeful and you want them on therapy and compliant, but at the same time, you don't want to overhype it and say, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the scenario that probably fits that most closely, Chad, is that, you know, after second or third line in colorectal cancer, if I don't have any clinical trials and I'm left with really nothing to talk about other than regorafenib or TAS-102. And then I'll sit down with the patient and I'll say, you know, you've been on treatment now for two years. You've done really well. As you know, the last treatment, the CAT scan shows things were starting to grow and the side effects were building. So it's time to stop that. Um, as of right now, we don't have any clinical trials here. My colleagues in Ottawa and Toronto don't have any clinical trials. Um, there is a chemotherapy pill that we can try. And while a chemotherapy pill sounds like it might be, you know, less toxic and appealing, I need to tell you that when I've given these treatments, they cause a lot of rash and diarrhea. And what we found in the clinical trials is when they took a whole bunch of patients like you and half of them got the pill and half of them didn't, on average, the patients who got the pill didn't live an extra four weeks or six weeks. And then, then I always say this, I always say, I'm not telling you, you only have four weeks to live. I'm saying that if I took a hundred patients like you and half of the people got this treatment, half of them didn't on average, the ones who got the treatment would live for an extra four weeks. And when I put it that way, most of my patients, I've had a few people who say, yes, I'd like to go on that treatment. Most people say, no, thank you. But then it's about reframing kind of goals and hope. And you're right. Like this is one of our most important jobs. I think the goal, I think the, the job description of an oncologist is to give compassionate care. And that compassionate care might involve treatments, but if it involves treatments, it should be treatments that make a big difference. And so I think, you know, as you rightly point out, this transition uh, framing hope and reality is I think the most important job that we do. I mean, anyone can look up a guideline, say, oh, it's second line, give them full Fox or full theory. But I think it's these nuanced discussions, which is probably the most important part of what we do. And so it's about reframing things and say, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the next number of weeks and months will look like. I often ask for permission. I say, do you want to talk about how long people live in this condition? 
And, you know, I usually, every time I switch lines of therapy, I use it as an opportunity to have these discussions. And sometimes people say no. Um, I, I usually want them to know that it's not curable, uh, just so they kind of have a correct framing of things. But if they don't want to know details, that's fine. If they want to know, then the way I explain it, Chatty, is so this example, kind of refractory colorectal cancer, I would say, um, I would say, I'm going to give you some numbers. But before I give you numbers, I just want to say that doctors are terrible at this. We're wrong. Studies have shown over and over again that when we um, give an estimate of how long people are going to live, we get it wrong in both directions. And I hope I get it wrong and I see you down the road much, many, many more years from the numbers I'm going to give you. I just want to frame it that way. And then I say, on average, when people are in this condition, they live for weeks and not months or months and not years. And, and I leave it that and I say, so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, if I say the months and not years line, I say there's a lot of variation in there. And sometimes it's only two or three months. Sometimes it's four or five months. Sometimes it's 10 or 12 months. And I said, I'll always be very honest with you. We might do scans periodically. I'll see you, you know, as often as you need to. And we'll keep revisiting that. But my goal right now is whatever time you do have left, I want to make sure that you feel as good as you can for as long as you can. And we'll try to keep you out of this place as much as possible so you can spend time doing the things you want to do. And that's the way I, I usually approach it. But this is this is the art of oncology. And I'm, I'm still learning. And I continue to learn from trainees and colleagues, and most importantly, from patients about how I could maybe ease this transition and do a better job of helping them through this transition. It's absolutely the art of oncology. And I'm curious, Chris, when you do that, have you been able to You've taken care of this patient, for example, for a while. Have you been able to predict, for example, the response of patient A versus patient B? Are you able to draw for us and my listeners a phenotype or somebody that you that is going to push harder versus somebody who is not? Is there a research out there more descriptive? Let's say age, uh, socioeconomic status, having children or not. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I wonder if there's something that says, if you have, if you have, if if you have, you know, these five factors, ninety percent of the time you're going to push for therapy. I don't know. Maybe there's something like that. I'm not aware of. You know, it's a really good question. I I I don't know the literature on that space. I suspect there is literature on that. Anecdotally, it tends to be younger patients. Tends to be um, higher socioeconomic status. Maybe hypereducated patients. Um, uh, you know, I, I look after uh, patients who come from an urban environment with a lot of education and patients from a rural environment who might be educated or maybe less educated. And I must admit that uh, the most pragmatic patients I look after are farmers, farmers from the countryside. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had all sorts of phenotypes of farmers and some patients who are farmers will want to have, you know, lots of therapy in a life. But a lot of them are, are more practical and pragmatic. But I mean, that that's just a gross generalization. And I can't really pinpoint any specific social demographic feature i suspect there's literature out there though yeah and 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 when when you when you talk about this you know obviously this hopefully helps you the way you frame it it does it's empathetic actually and it's very real and i can imagine that patients will react favorably to it they realize that you have their best interest at heart but you commented earlier on something called value to patients and one of my pet peeves is that we as physicians sometimes assume what is valuable to patients. And I, I think it's very easy. All patients want to live longer, right? Yeah. All patients want to have a good quality of life. That's the yeah. easy part. That's the yes. easy thing. I always say it's easy, of course. But you know what? 
patients might be okay with just the tumor shrinking because psychologically it's better for them. Maybe it's less time at the doctor's office if the tumor is shrinking. Maybe the symptoms get better. That goes to the quality of life. But there's a lot of us projecting what's valuable to patients. Do yeah. we know really for sure that patients do not care about PFS? Chatty, great question. So I agree with you. It's a problem us making these, uh, you know, presuppositions about patients' values. So two things um, to comment there. First is how do patients want to spend their time? So as we've thought about this construct of time toxicity, uh, we've had to reconcile the fact that I would assume that most patients want to spend more time fishing or traveling or visiting loved ones, but some people might get a sense of uh, security, peace, or proaction by being in the cancer center, getting treatment, and they might derive benefit from that. So you're right. I, I, we need to do qualitative mixed methods work to kind of understand how do patients want to spend time in the last year of their life and which demographics or which phenotypes of patients will want to spend more or less time out of the hospital or out of the cancer center versus engaged in healthcare. Um, PFS. So I thought about this for, for many, many years. You know, one of the earliest papers I wrote in faculty uh, was uh, a paper with Elizabeth Eisenhower and JCO, progression-free survival. Is it meaningful or simply measurable? And it's amazing that 10 years later, I think we're still trying to reconcile uh, those <laughs> issues. I think that there are some circumstances where it is meaningful. I think the vast majority of circumstances, it is measurable. And increasingly, we're learning that it's not very easily measurable or it might be inaccurate in this measurement. So let me unpack that. Um, it has meaning when it is a valid surrogate for what we know matters, okay? So there's clearly scenarios where PFS has been shown to be a valid surrogate for overall survival. And I think that's a very appropriate use of PFS. It would also have meaning if it had intrinsic value to patients, as you mentioned, by the sense of tumor control. Now, we, we published a, a systematic review on this in JAM Oncology a few years ago. We looked at how do patients perceive progression-free survival. And the studies, it was a dog's breakfast. It was all over the map. There were small studies, large studies. A lot of them used the word progression-free survival, that third word, which I think biases patients. And so we decided to investigate this. And we did um, a study that was published a year ago, small study, 20 patients, trade-off study in the Journal of Cancer Policy where we did not use the word progression-free survival. We enrolled 20 patients who had uh, advanced solid tumors who had been on palliative chemotherapy for at least three months. So they knew what life was like on chemotherapy. And then they met with a research nurse who walked them through a hypothetical new treatment. And it, the interview went something along the lines of, imagine your current treatment is no longer working. You meet with your oncologist who says that there's a new treatment that's available and here are the side effects. Gave a piece of paper with typical side effects. And we said, unfortunately, this treatment will not help you live any longer. But what it might do is delay the amount of time before your cancer grows on a CAT scan. How much additional time of tumor control in a CAT scan would you want to accept this treatment that will require, you know, infusions every two weeks with the usual side effects. We, we made them up based on, you know, typical side effects. And we, we started at like 24 months and 22 months and 20 months. The idea kept marching down. We wanted to see where they flip and where they would say it's not worthwhile. 
small sample size, 17 out of 20 patients looked at the research nurse and said, what are you crazy? I wouldn't want this for any PFS benefit without using that word. So really this was getting at the question is, does imaging control in the absence of survival or quality of life matter to patients? 17 patients clearly said, no, it doesn't. Two patients would do it for like 14 or 16 months of imaging control, not the usual six weeks. And one patient, as you you know, alluded to earlier in our interview, one patient said that she would do anything for any benefit. You know, what's missing, you, know, you know what's missing of that research? What's that? These are healthy volunteers that are pretending to be patients. These are not actual patients who are having symptoms, right? Well, well they're on palliative chemotherapy. These are advanced oh. solid tumor patients. No, these are on palliative. Yeah, that, that was the advanced with us. So these oh, are real that's patients. That's these great. are real patients who have been on treatment for at least three months. So they know the trials and tribulations. No, no, that, that's great. That, that's yeah. great. That, and I want to highlight this because one of the pitfalls of some of the studies I usually read, yeah. when you take really a healthy volunteer and say, pretend like an actor, pretend you're a patient, it's easy because you don't have the symptoms. So this is very powerful uh, that these are actual patients getting chemotherapy. Yeah. There, that's very very powerful. Yeah. So so small site, you know, single center, twenty patients, but we use that pilot data to get a, a grant from our our funding agency, similar to the NIH, the uh, CIHR, Canadian Institute for Health Research. We got a large operating grant, and we're just about to complete a multi center prospective study of hundred patients going through the same exercise. And we'll have final results, you know, in the near future. But I, I suspect that this will um, probably confirm in general the impressions of the pilot study. But that'll be very, very useful information. But as you said, Chadi, not every patient's the same, right? So we have to think about that as we articulate these benefits to patients. But a lot of patients are pretty pragmatic. And I think a lot of them would not want treatments that are toxic, take time, cost money to them out of pocket and are not gonna help them live longer, but just control growth for a few months. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think having, having, having these studies to get the patient's value is really important, but um, have you encountered patients where, like you were forced to give treatment or do you, do you just put your foot down and say, look, I'm just not gonna give this therapy. You can see the oncologist next door, but I just don't believe in my heart that this is beneficial and I'm not gonna give it. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, in some ways, I'm a little bit more protected from that conversation than my colleagues in the U.S. because um, we have a publicly funded cancer system. And so there is a health technology assessment body that has decided which medicines will be paid for and which ones will not. So the really marginal stuff in Ontario is not even really an option. It's not funded in the public context. So I'm probably, I avoid some of those conversations that you and your colleagues would be more likely to have because it just isn't an option to access these medicines. Having said that, there are some treatments where uh, I, I've certainly been asked to, you know, retreat with something that we use in the first line and now we're in the fourth line or, you know, things that I, I am uncomfortable doing. And I'm, I'm quite comfortable now saying, I do not think this is gonna help you. I'm worried about the side effects and risks. And um, 
you know, I work in a, in a large group of six GI medical oncologists here at Queens. And so I said, it, it, I'm happy to arrange for a second opinion. And then they'll see either one of my colleagues here in Kingston, or we'll go to Toronto or Ottawa to see a colleague. And um, I'd say probably most of the time, uh, the second opinion agrees that, you know, pursuing that treatment is not wise. And occasionally they'll have another option or clinical trial. And that's fine, right? I have, uh, you know, I, I still, I think the residents still find it amusing that even though I'm not junior anymore and I'm fairly mid-career, I have no ego when it comes to like calling colleagues for advice and health. In fact, I love it. Like I'll walk down the hall and say, hey, Scott, Jim, you know, Anna, what do you think about this case? Or I'll call colleagues in Toronto and Ottawa. I find that kind of fun. And I'm happy to say, tough case. I'm not really sure what to do. You know, what do you think? And so I, I tend to engage my colleagues in those difficult you keep saying you're mid-career. Come on, you're you're senior now. It's as a, <laughs> not mid-career. So 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 um, you know we talked about a lot of these things pertaining to the impact on patients. Other projects that you really want uh, you know to, to to see, or can you share a project that really lived up to your expectations, where there has been change in policy from a patient perspective. I mean, my goal from this podcast is really, I wanna highlight how a health policy researcher, healthcare delivery researcher is able to help patients separate hype from hope. There's so much out there, so many therapies, and a lot of them don't work well. Some of them work well. And here we are in the middle trying to help patients. But again, we wanna maintain their hopeful approach without lying and telling them this thing works and it doesn't. Yeah, I think, um, I think, uh, the, some of the work I've done, I think, has contributed to these meaningful conversations about value. And there's there's a number of you know close friends and colleagues and, and individuals across uh, our field that have been working in this. I think that I've been able to get some of these issues, you know, pushing back on PFS, pushing back on marginal gains, publishing studies that show that you know maybe the oncology bar is dropped too low. At least in Canada and in some European health systems, I think this message is starting to get through to, um, to regulators and policymakers that are saying, you know what, maybe this isn't in the best interest of patients. Maybe we collectively as a community should start pushing back and get the trialists and the pharmaceutical companies and the system to raise the bar. So I think maybe that's in some ways I might've contributed to that conversation. I think in the global space, I do a lot of work uh, with colleagues in India and other parts of South Asia. I think drawing attention to this the paradox of global oncology, where we probably in some centers and some systems have access to too much medicine at the end of life that isn't helping. And in other parts of the world, we have a desperate lack of access to the treatments that have profound impact. And this is not a new problem. And certainly many people have been working on this uh, well before me and have much more expertise and have made a greater contribution. But I think because I've been able to live and work in, in different systems, namely in India and Canada, I've been able to gain some insights that are hopefully contributing at least to some policy uh, within the health systems and maybe the level of the World Health Organization. Uh, I've listened to a TED talk that you gave, which was really fascinating. Tell me about that experience. I want to link to listeners to hopefully can take a listen to it, but I thought it was very powerful. What, how was that experience and how did this come about? Yeah, Chai, so that was probably the, the hardest academic exercise I've ever done. Um, so our Dean of Medicine, Dr. Jane Philpott, who is, uh, you know, a Canadian hero, uh, she uh, has a long career as a family physician, an educator working in global health, and then became the Federal Minister of Health and Federal Minister of Indigenous Affairs in Canada before, before, leaving, before leaving politics. 
Um, she uh, came to Queens as our Dean of Medicine about three years ago now. And last year, she asked me to give one of these TED Talks for the medical school. And I'm a big fan of Dr. Philpott. So I said, of course, of course, happy to do that. And then I realized what I'd committed myself to, which is basically giving a talk in front of an eclectic mix of uh, the public and colleagues and patients about something serious like cancer, which it's really hard to make cancer funny and to be really engaging and then to have to memorize an 18 minute talk on a stage when you're nervous with no slides and no notes. It was really, really hard. But the hardest thing was to think about, well, what do I want to talk about? And this was actually well timed. And although I was really you know, frustrated at the time and probably would give Jane a hard time when I talked to her before the event, afterwards, I was really glad that she made me do this because it allowed me to crystallize the issue I care most deeply about and maybe think about how I can start moving the needle on some of these things. Um, so I did that. I spoke about, you know, these paradoxes in oncology to feel full of paradoxes. And so one of the paradox that, you know, I think a lot about, I call it the, the last six months of life paradox in oncology. And so I'm sure this is something you observed in your clinical practice and, and your listeners will, will, will uh, have also experienced. It, it's when I'm looking after someone who is in the last six months of their life, it's relatively easy for me to prescribe a new cancer medicine that costs $100,000. It is going to make them a bit sick. It might slow growth of tumors on a CAT scan, probably won't help them live any longer. So that part is fairly easy. The, the paradox is that for that very same patient in those last six months, it's almost impossible for me to arrange for them to have adequate community supports for them to live if they're isolated to live at home by themselves with food, adequate nursing care, care and compassion, someone checking on them. It's, it's almost impossible to arrange that. And like, that's a real paradox. And, and how is it that as a society and a health system, we're okay with that? We shouldn't be. Um, you know, we could have a much greater impact by ensuring that we give what I consider, you know, high value care, especially in the last six months of life. And I don't know if it's any different in the U.S., but I suspect that patients also fall through the cracks with home care and hospice care near the end of life. Um, so I think that's a big problem. And I think that we have a lot of, you know, if you think of the next generation of oncologists, there's so much energy and creative talent and intellect in the field. And I think we can do better than aiming for six weeks of PFS. I just think that there's more exciting, important, and impactful projects and questions that as a community we can work towards that will really lead to meaningful gains for our patients and our communities. And so I hope that in the coming years we'll see, you know, the junior people in our field uh, increasingly work on those really challenging issues. Well, look, I, I've enjoyed this. This is really great. I, 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 I'm going to look continue to look forward to more of these projects that you come up with in terms of uh, changing the way we take care of patients. And uh, I certainly look forward to working with you on a few of them in terms of, I mean, we have a lot of similar interests in terms of the, the things that drive what we actually do. I, I tend to think that the, the need the, to moving the needle is, is so slow in that, in that thing. And, um, but uh, congratulations on everything you're doing. And uh, we, we will continue to look forward to more projects coming from you. Great. Thanks, Chad. I really appreciate you inviting me on the show. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your feedback. And I appreciate you tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered and supporting the podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to rate the podcast. If you have some time and you can write a brief review, I am grateful for that. And if you can refer a friend or a colleague to this podcast, I'm sure they'll find a topic or a guest that they would love listening to or a topic they would love to learn about. I would appreciate if you could do that. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can watch all of these interviews on the YouTube channel. Don't forget to let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or visit my website, shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I want to leave you with a saying from a Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.